Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 119. And as always, thanks for listening. Uh, excited about today's podcast. Uh, we are meeting with Alan Holmgren, who is a longtime narrative therapist, uh, you know, very brought narrative therapy to Denmark, um, started an organization called Dispuke and trains, uh, which trains folks in narrative therapy as well as uh, narrative practice within organizations, leadership management, that sort of stuff. But I got invited by them to interview Alan kind of across time zones. They were holding a one day uh, kind of narrative seminar, uh, lots of different speakers, and um, got invited to interview Alan. Uh, got to wake up at 3 a.m., <laughs> 3.30 a.m., sorry, uh, to prep for that and get ready for it and then interview him. And, uh, and it was a wonderful interview, uh, lots of interesting ideas around narrative therapy uh, and using narrative therapy or taking these ideas into organizational leadership management work. And uh, really excited to bring this to you. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun to do. And again, uh, thanks to all the folks at Dispute for the invitation to do this. Uh, for those that don't know, Alan Holmgren is uh, currently adjunct professor. He's a lecturer. He speaks a lot, does a lot of trainings. He's a licensed psychologist. Uh, he got his uh, degree from the University of Copenhagen uh, a while back, and and he is the founder of Dispuke in Copenhagen. And uh, he stopped as the director about a year, yeah, year and a half ago, that kind of thing, and now is a, an external consultant for Dispuke. And um, yeah, just doing a, doing a lot of work out there, keeping uh, sharing these narrative ideas. And um, in and how they might uh, apply in organizational leadership and management work, and uh, but we go th we go into a lot of history and all of that. So, without further ado, let's uh, let's go to the to the seminar. Let's go to Copenhagen and uh, let's meet Alan. Thank you, thank you, Olivia. Thank you, Nis, and uh, and the new uh, leadership of this book for organizing this. And I just whispered to Chris. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself so that the audience get a sense of uh, what it means to be called a radical therapist <laughs> or where you are? And so you introduce yourself, and after that, uh, I, I can I can start out with some storytelling. But Chris, please go ahead. Yes, thanks, Alan. Um, and I would like to thank uh, Martin and Nice and Olivia for putting this together and. I'm really excited to have this conversation across time zones. It's uh, a lot of fun. So, um, what time is it? Your time zone? Uh, Four forty-five in the morning. I actually woke up at three thirty a.m. <laughs> so, I am in California. For those that don't know, and uh, I, some of the things that I do, I, I'm the founder and director of California Family Institute, which is a community counseling center in Southern California where we train um, therapists that are interested in um, working in narrative, collaborative, post-structuralist ways. Uh, and um, and then the Radical Therapist, I've been doing this podcast now, I think five, six years or something like that. And I don't think I'm all that radical, but um, I did take the, the name from the podcast from an old journal from some radicals that were in the uh, American Psychiatric Association and they started a journal back in the late 60s, early 70s called The Radical Therapist, and that was the inspiration for this podcast. And so that's how that came to be. Um, I think that's enough about me. Can I, can yeah, I, that's can, back from the, <laughs> the, the anti-psychiatry days, hmm. Lang and Cooper. I, yeah, I yeah, guess yeah, that. yeah, 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 yep. yeah, yeah. So that's that was tradition. It was also here in in Europe and in Denmark. So <clears throat> what we've been uh, announced to talk about is uh, first I should talk about my relationship to narrative work to to Michael White, and then <clears throat> we have been asked to uh, to uh, I should I should talk about my my use of narrative ideas in leadership yeah. and organizational work. And you can interview me uh, yeah. or, or put up some questions uh, relating to that. I do so, have several. Uh, yep. Yeah. 
yeah, would, would that be okay? So <clears throat> I, I, I thought of some storytelling here hmm. because back in, in the 80s, there was a development <clears throat> of so-called uh, breaching conferences between Western Europe and Eastern European countries. And it was obvious that people from Eastern European countries did not have so much money to travel and participate in conferences in, uh, in, in Western Europe. So <clears throat> there was a, a group of, of American and European psychologists and psychiatrists who organized uh, uh, conferences in, in, in the former Eastern countries, in, uh, in, uh, in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, in, in Poland, and so forth. So we participated here from this book in the 80s, uh, back in these conferences. There was one conference in, <clears throat> I think it was in, in Budapest, where I, I met with Carl Tom. Hmm. And Carl Tom has uh, been a, a major uh, translator, I would say, or presenter of, of much family therapy work. He, he, he firstly uh, met the, the Milan group uh, back in the beginning of, of the 80s and, and wrote his, uh, his, his paper about uh, different questions uh, from a systemic, in systemic therapy. And we were uh, at that time uh, interested in uh, in systemic uh, therapy and inspired by the Italians uh, Luigi Boscolo and Gianfranco Cecchin, and and they were here in Denmark, and we invited them. And uh, <clears throat> but the story is that Carl Tom said to me, I think it was in '86, uh, "Have you heard about Michael White?" And I said, "No, no. Well, he's a very." Uh, He's a very, uh, what you say, uh, I would say radical therapist didn't use that word, <laughs> but he's doing some interesting work in, uh, he's from Adelaide, Australia. So I immediately, uh, I think I got his address from Carl Tom and I invited uh, Michael White to come. So he came here in spring 87. So that was, that was his first tour in, uh, <clears throat> in, to Europe. So he came here, and at that time, I was uh, the director of an institution for an institution for for young people between uh, 15, 16 to 25, who had been in a psychiatric hospital, and they had got severe diagnosis. Um, we have uh, we had uh, strong in, in involvement in family therapy. We had invited the families. So when Michael came, uh, he. Uh, I uh, <clears throat> I thought of how can we bring his work uh, around. So there were there is uh, or there was a psychiatric hospital uh, nearby in Elsinore called Montebello, and I, I was a good friend with the new uh, medical director there. So I said, should we uh, should we make a workshop together? Uh, this is uh, our private uh, institution and the psychiatric hospital. And here's the story I, uh, I thought I, I wanted to tell that Michael, he should interview uh, a patient uh, at the psychiatric hospital. She had severe pain, uh, pain. Uh, she had pain in her back. So they were sitting in a big circle. Uh, the woman uh, who actually had to stand up because of the pain and, and her husband, nurses and, and uh, psychiatrists. And I think they were about 10, 12. So he listened to this woman about her back pain. Then he said, uh, what about you? Then he turned to the psychiatrist and the and nurses. What are your experiences with back pain? So that was a, sh a kind of shock because what he wanted to, uh, to accomplish was that it is not just the focus on, on the patient, but the focus on the community, focusing on... Uh, on the professionals. So they would say that he was interested in the human beings and not in the pain in, in the pain in itself. So that was a kind of, 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 of using the idea of outsider witnesses. So, so he could have said, what is, what is the resonance that you have? And uh, <clears throat> that was a kind of uh, uh, a, a woe experience. And since 87, I think he has been here almost every year introducing his work. And uh, 
I think after 10 years or so, Michael said, uh, I, I have no nothing new to say. I don't know why you invite me. <laughs> and I, I just said, please don't say anything new. Just come and say whatever you want to say, show your tapes. So uh, so we developed a, a kind of strong friendship, uh, Michael and I. And I did not know how, how, how I get emotional now because I, I did not know. <clears throat> Sorry. I did not know how strong the friendship was uh, after until after he died. Because Michael was a kind of private person. And I'm not that kind of private person. So I spoke to him about uh, my difficulties, my divorce, and whatever happened in, in this book here. Uh, so, uh, so his girlfriend told me after his death that he regarded me as one of his five friends. And, and uh, as you can hear, <clears throat> that, that had said a, a profound importance for me. And, and, and actually, we, we followed also in the theoretical development, not just his studies on, um, on Foucault, but also the studies on Gilles Deleuze, and um, <clears throat> I, I was very interested in, in Gilles Deleuze's work because where Foucault focused on power, Gilles Deleuze focused on, uh, I would say, creativity or a livelihood and uh, uh, the spirit of living. And uh, so uh, Michael also interviewed uh, uh, many of the families uh, that uh, to, the, to the young people here in the institution. But I, uh, I think that his, his, his inspiration, you cannot, cannot uh, overestimate its importance, at least uh, for, for my work and, and for, the, uh, for, for, for many of the traditions here. And I, and I know that there's a lot of competition between different schools and different ways of work. And uh, I think that narrative therapy is so radical uh, that it, it actually... It, it, it will never, you know, go into and be uh, middle of the road therapy because it always takes you to to the limit to the limit, it, 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 and always go again goes against uh, the power structures. So uh, I have been in Adelaide many times, and uh, uh, many here from this book has, or some here from this book has uh, has participated in the training program. So that was a bit about my my story with Michael and uh, yes. Yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah. Alan, thank you for that. And I, I guess I'm curious about maybe dispute and how that came to be, but also as I understand it, you, you are technically a clinical psychologist and maybe can you share a little bit about how you started to transition into organizational and management work? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, thing is that, in the late 80s, I started supervision group for uh, other professionals because I could see our work with the, the families uh, were, 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 were very successful when we involved the, the people and, and the persons around, uh, around the, uh, uh, the families. So, so many, many professionals, social workers started to, to come to my uh, supervision groups. And the problems they talked about uh, were not, uh, let's say, clinical, <laughs> clinical issues, but it was uh, organizational issues, organizational problems that uh, that between different agencies in a, muni a municipality or or the problems uh, or fights between. Uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, social workers. These were the themes. So the more I listened uh, to uh, to the uh, to the problems that were raised in the supervision groups, I I got I got this idea that hey, uh, management and organizational development can be understood as power struggles. Uh, so I used a lot of Foucault's idea to understand what kind of power is at is at uh, is at stake here. So that's that's uh, how I I got more and more interested in in organizational work. And then uh, in the in in late 80s and beginning of the 90s, we worked together with the uh, with uh, Peter Lang and Martin Little, two guys from 
from London, they had what they called Kensington Consultation Center. And they had already started uh, a leadership and management course where they used not narrative ideas, but systemic ideas to, to use uh, Bateson, uh, Bateson's phrase to see how the patterns connect. So that was, that was a kind of a systemic way into, into uh, organizational work. And they uh, inspired uh, me to start uh, management and leadership training. Uh, so we did that in the beginning in, in cooperation and with the inspiration from them. Uh, but, but they did not have, uh, as you know, systemic therapy has, did, do not have uh, a concept, uh, does not have a concept of power. So uh, I immediately felt that something was lacking in the systemic approach which I found in the narrative approach that we all we always got to be aware of the power we are exercising, and uh, so so it was with the inspiration from my supervision groups, inspiration from Peter Lang and Martin Little that we started leadership training programs back in ninety one mm. and and ninety two. So I think that for more than thirty years we have had. Uh, two-year training programs. And, and what we're teaching uh, more and more uh, are, are the fundamentals in, in the narrative spirit. So when you speak about external, externalization, it's just to show that every, every problem is a contextual problem, but not just a contextual problem. It, it's, it's, a it's, a, it's a problem that, that arises, arises within power games. And so that's that's one one idea one idea. The other idea that we we strongly try to to use is the idea of of uh, outsider witnesses or actually witnesses. So when uh, I, I jump immediately to, to some of the ideas that would when we go into an organization, we say that <clears throat> there's one basic rule here in this organization, and the basic rule is that you're not allowed to discuss because you're here to listen to stories. So, so the idea is that like working with families, every story counts. And it's the important thing is to hear the voice of everyone. That's why <clears throat> I appreciate it when, when, uh, when uh, Travis this morning had, had the basic concept for as, as a voice. And this uh, goes very well along with Carol Gilligan's work because she says we are born with a voice and interrelationship. So, so I have for, for, for many years said, after I met Carol Gilligan's work, that the basic concept is voice, because if you don't have a voice, you cannot tell a narrative. So in organizational work, it's important that every voice can be heard. And every voice should be uh, uh, approached with a, 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 a resonance response because that's a way to create uh, strong communities. So, 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 so the power of, 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 uh, of the spirit of externalization and the, and the power of the spirit of, of see all participants in an organization as witnesses to each other and we are not together to discuss, but to get a better understanding of the many, many local knowledges that exist around in the organization. Um, that's, that has become uh, a, fun, a fundamental for, for, my, for, for me taking the ideas, narrative ideas into leadership and organizational work. But, but you know, it, it goes against the, the whole... Uh, basic notion as, as, uh, as the leadership you, who should have the answers. And I say, no, 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 the leaders should have the questions. And at the same time, the, you, you, you get power through your questions. So you've got to be very, very aware of the power you're exercising. That's the ethical perspective to reflect on what, what are the effects of what you're doing. So you, you, you might say that is a kind of uh, of uh, engaging, involving uh, leadership and organizational development. So I have used this approach uh, at, at, at both private companies and uh, and public uh, companies or departments. And uh, 
one 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 thing that I always uh, I, I would say demand is that all levels of management should be present because if it's only the staff and the middle manager you don't have the the boss or the boss of the boss so so we have done consultation work where i insisted that the the mayor of the town the director of the town and the the political level and the, the technical level and all the staff should be in the same room to hear all the different voices uh, so, so that's that's a, a, a basic principle to bring all the relevant persons together and to listen with resonance. That's great. I, I guess I'm I'm curious. In your 30 years now or plus of doing this work, you know, organizational change and and kind of leadership development and management stuff is often in, enacted in distinctly utilitarian, neoliberal, and modernist ways. And I'm wondering, you know, what has been your experience or, um, as you've entered into organizational management work with narrative practice? I'm not invited into organizations with neoliberal or utilitarian ways. And I'm invited into organizations where uh, a leader or... Um, yeah, at least some or most of the organization understand uh, this profound approach uh, because uh, it, 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 you see, this is not a, a question of effectiveness. This is a, a question of humanity. This is a question of, of, of the spirit to get into. So, so we won't get involved into uh, all these terrible things that are happening in a neoliberalist or, uh, or utilitarian uh, uh, ideas of working, uh, but but uh, but we are invited into where where people ha people have uh, you know a sense of this is this is helpful this is good for the organization. A whole municipality uh, south of uh, south of Copenhagen uh, was run by uh, uh, a CEO, uh, and and she had take had taken a two-year training program in in this book and all her her, her managers uh, next level ceos had also had two-year training program and she insisted that every manager should understand this language and should understand this spirit and uh, and it, it were and i i guess it worked there for about 10 years and and then she left uh, but then you know new people came new probably neoliberalist in, because this is uh, actually actually it's a uh, it's um it's an opposition to to the main ideas of uh, you know just looking at the budget not looking at uh, human beings and uh, not looking at the power so so an organization need and it's uh, people who are aware of this uh, this this uh, line of thought, and it, it it could be changed like that. Actually, actually, I there's a story when I worked uh, in a bank here in in the northern part of of uh, of uh, of Zealand, and uh, the the director of of probably eighteen twenty branches here, he came to me and said. Uh, I, 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 this is so boring what I'm doing, and uh, but I'm just showing the, you know, the graphs and the figures, how much money they have earned, and now the top management in Copenhagen has developed three three values uh, that we should follow. But how how could I approach that? Uh, so I said to him, well, if that's a man that mandatory that that you got it, that the, the the bank has to follow these three values. Show them on a, uh, on a on a flip charts, and ask the the participant the, the the employees in every little branch how they actually practicing them already. So he did that, but before that, I said, how, "What do you do usually?" Well, I go and and show the graphs, and 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 people fall asleep, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So if you uh, if you engage people and listen to their voices. Uh, you you can uh, you know both follow the what the top management has said, and you can actually find out the local knowledge in relation to these. 
And then you get got to train the, the managers in, in listening, in listening to what their employees say. So after a year, he was, you know, looking at the bank. Uh, he was about number 20 in the country or, or this area. And after a year, he was number five or, or six. Uh, just w with this uh, change, so I know that that <clears throat> that it can be discussed whether we want to <clears throat> help the banks uh, earn more money. But I think that how can we cre create a more a more human, uh, more more of a space where each voice is listened to it, and it demands of of course a lot of ethics. But what happened in that bank was that because he was so successful, he was taken to the main office in Copenhagen. And then the new leader came and did what they had done years before. So they fell on, on income. What I'm saying with this that, is that uh, uh, the kind of, of a management of leadership that actually take the employees serious and listen to the voices uh, can actually create both a better place to work and perhaps even earn more money. So this is, this is, this is the argument, but, uh, but we're not participating, you know, in, in, in processes of, of, of firing people and, or reducing people. But um, it's really important that the basic concept is listening to, to the voice of those who work there. Yeah, can you, can you maybe say more about that? Because I, I did have a question about, you know, those interested in bringing a narrative approach to consulting with management and organizations. How, how do you do that while, while av avoiding expert-imposed solutions? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, never, I never imply that I'm an expert. I could say I'm an expert in processes. I'm an expert in organizing ways of talking. Like, like Michael Wyatt says that <clears throat> when, when you're uh, dealing with outside of witnesses, you've got to follow certain rules and not just leave it to chance, whatever people want to say. So I say that I am, I'm following certain uh, procedures. And if you're not prepared to listen to what is said, then we should not go along with these procedures. So um, uh, I, th I think that the, 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 the knowledge has to be the local knowledge. It has to come from within. I, I think it's about 30 years ago when I did a consultation in a, in a cleaning company. Uh, they said we are earning too, too, not enough money. And uh, so I suggested that they brought all all those together who worked in that area, uh, in, in northern Jutland. But they say, no, no, we cannot bring the workers. We can only bring, it was three level, four level of, of managers. And said, okay, bring them together. So by, by, by bringing them together, by talking about the problems, by talking about the effect of the problems, by talking about what is really important for you, where do you feel the best and so forth, uh, they came up with new ideas for organizing, and uh, I was criticized by the uh, the top CEO because he said this process is so simple that I want to criticize it. I want to criticize you. So what what we are practicing is actually to to listen to, the, to those involved, and you know some some got other positions and some where they felt that they could uh, uh, work better, function better. And um, so everyone, when I say that everyone was happy, I would say that uh, everyone was uh, much more satisfied uh, with their work. And then <clears throat> the company could earn much more money because of the eff effectiveness. Because effectiveness is also that we are not wasting the resources, not wasting uh, uh, the stuff that we're using, but that we are uh, aware of how we are using our, our resources. And uh, so I think that the basic principle is actually that, that let me tell you a little bit of a story, mm -hmm. or at least uh, um, so goes the story that when a Japanese top manager wants to change this organization, 
he speaks to the guy uh, at, at the front desk about this organization. And when he hears about this change from the, the, the vice CEO, then he knows the organization is ready. With this story, I, I, I mean that everybody got to be involved in, in the meaningfulness. You see, there's another story about uh, a, a man, uh, two guys at, at, the, at the, the Gaudi uh, Cathedral in Barcelona. One is asked, what are you doing, my friend? And he says, I'm carrying rocks. The other guy says, no, 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 I am uh, building a cathedral. So the whole thing about meaning, what's the story about what you're doing here? Why are you here? Uh, uh, the big why. So we, we, we got to have a story in which our, our culture, where we are, is, uh, is included. So, so I, I often in, invite the, the, the leaders and managers who take courses here to go home and ask their employees, why are you here? What are you doing? How are you contributing to the culture with your work? And uh, they come back very, very surprised. Some has a very good sense. So the task of, of, of the leader, I would say, is to create meaning. What we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're participating uh, in, in the culture. And, and what are the dilemmas with our production or with our work and so forth. And, uh, and this, was, this goes very much against uh, the political and the administrative uh, dominating ways of work where a top group is deciding what the rest should do. So, so in, in a sense, this is, uh, this is very, uh, very radical because what we want to support is, is uh, local knowledge on, on every, in every branch. And you, and you see what, what is happening right now in Denmark is that we, one of the rich countries, got to reduce money or we say we have not money or we got to uh, uh, cut down on hospitals and schools and so forth. And we got a lot of money. So that's a paradox here that, that I haven't understood very well. Mm. Um, so the ideas from, from, from narrative work is, is to understand that every problem is actually a problem because of what has happening, what has happened in the culture and in the power structures. So, so there's this focus on, on, on power and what are the effects of the problem. So on one hand, we have the problems. On the other hand, we have what is really important for people. And, and just to, to, to that people get this sense that there's only a problem because there's something that is important. You know, uh, like this scale you have uh, in a pharmacy where you're, wait, where you're waiting, you know, uh, uh, on each scale, uh, a kind of balance. There's only a problem because something is important. So what we want to do is to, to, uh, uh, to raise the consciousness about what is important. What are the values that we, uh, that, that we follow? And we have a Danish philosopher who is uh, actually also a very radical philosopher. Who, and he has his background in phenomenology, but also in, in French philosophy and Foucault and, and Deleuze. And, and so we're using his work as well uh, as, uh, as a philosophical ground for, for our work. Uh, Travis mentioned this morning that uh, Michael White and David Ibsen did not read books about psychotherapy, but anthropology and uh, uh, philosophy. And I remember David Ibsen, and once I was in Adelaide, said that he would all he would always recom recommend students not to not to study psychology but anthropology. I mean, ways of living, and I and I really like that idea. That's great, and uh, and I, I I do echo that with Travis too that you know I, I was reading a book just last night called the design designs for the plural plural verse and I'm like oh this is like the best therapy book <laughs> it has nothing to do with let's, therapy. let's hear again design for what designs for the plural verse uh I'll track it down plural I'll, verse yeah, yeah. uh I was, I was like oh, this 
this is the best therapy book I've read in a while, and it's not has nothing to do with therapy. But uh, I have a question. I'm in California. There's a big company headquartered here called Google, and they did what is now a kind of a well-known study on their organization about their highest performing teams. And what came out of that was this idea of psychological safety. And so now psychological safety has become a hot topic in organizations. And uh, because it sh- their research showed that employees who feel psychologically safe are more likely to speak up with ideas, opinions, concerns. Uh, which can in, uh, lead to increased innovation, better decision-making, improved performance, all that stuff. And I guess I'm wondering what, what you might say narrative practice or narrative therapy has to say about this turn toward a culture of psychological safety. Uh, first of all, I don't like the term psychological. <laughs> but I, I, I like the term uh, a kind of safety or safe place, but, but it's all about power. Uh, and and you can see you can see for, with children if they are uh, if they are a bit afraid a bit scared they are not ready to learn. So what what is important for children is is to create a safe space or safe environment. You do not speak about psychological uh, safe. I know I'm saying it with a bit bigger bit of, of, of distance or. Uh, arrogance here, but but it's not about a psychological; it's about in, environmental and and power space. So, in Denmark, we have two words. We have uh, uh, one word is you can directly translate with trust. It's called trykhed. But then we have another a word called tillid. I don't know. I will ask the audience. Do you do you know the different what confidence? Yeah, trust and confidence. So um, there's a Danish philosopher. He says that everyone is is born with the confidence, and I say no. Confidence is a as an as an effect of trust. So you, so so a safe environment where you feel where you can trust the grown-ups, where you can trust your perception. Then you can develop confidence. Thank you for that translation. So what I'm interested in is that, uh, like parents and uh, and uh, and leaders, they are not misusing their power. So so I know I I, I guess I know what what Google mean uh, and other. Uh, I think that has become a, 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 a modern concept as well. Uh, psychological what, what was it safety or yeah yeah safety no 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 it's 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 i would say it's environment environmental or it's a it, it's cultural and it, and i would actually take it down to relational safety so you've got to have relational safety uh to be able to have confidence both to yourself and to others so uh, you see, every 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 time the word psychological is used, I know, hey, hey, there's something wrong here. <laughs> it's not about psychology. It, 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 it's much bigger. It's much bigger because then you then you can turn it inwards. So you do not feel psychological safe enough. It, it's it's a kind of uh, uh, internalizing concept, and I think we should be very 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 aware of these kind of concepts that has to do with psychology. <laughs> actually, <laughs> it, it, actually, I hate that theme because the problems are, are so big that we should not just see a psychologist, we should see a sociologist. Hmm. That's great. <laughs> Good fun. Okay. So, so I, 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 hope, I hope you get my, my point. We yeah. always got to be uh, very much aware of the concept used because the concepts, uh, uh, if they get popular, Something's wrong with them, because then then you cannot go against it. With oh, you are, are you against uh, uh, psychological trust? And I say, uh, every concept you 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 got to be able to to go against it, or you got to be able to uh, to explain what it means and what it does does not mean. So so that's why I am very reluctant, even to psychotherapy. 
<laughs> because the psychotherapy implies that something is wrong, you know, within the person. And every one of us, we are effects of what is happening in relationship to others, to culture, to colleagues, and so so it's much more. I I, I don't have a a, a a good word instead of psychotherapy, but. Uh, it's not something with the person, even if the person hears voices, uh, it, it, it is nothing to do with the person as such, but it, it's, it has been built up over time. It is what has happened to this person. Uh, so uh, you don't ask a person, hey, what's the matter with you? You ask, what has happened in your life? And what are your experiences? So, uh, so experience is another uh, basic concept what are your experiences uh, about this? Great. Alan, where do you see the future of integrating narrative therapy in organizational work headed? Where do you see it going? Um, I think that there must come, there must come, uh, we could say a revolution, we could say uh, uh, a move against neoliberalism. And, and it's already happening all by many places. But I see that, that at least in Denmark, more and more people are leaving uh, the big town, at least because it's so expensive to live there. So the, I think that we've got to uh, uh, build the, the local communities again, uh, small towns, villages, and so forth. And I think that the more people are aware of, of, of local organizing, I think that 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 narrative ideas can be stimulating to to find many different ways of, of organizing uh, in Denmark we have a tradition of uh, uh, yeah co cooperatives cooperatives mm -hmm. at least in the in the agricultural eras but but I think that there's some movement in Denmark where people go together and buy a farm and so forth and and try to uh, so I think that that you see steps uh, around that where people uh, uh, people are using uh, not just narrative ideas but I would say democratic ideas to to really have to found a, 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 a local democracy where where many voices are heard and I know it it, it takes time but but actually. Uh, this is a, a kind of a democratic approach where every voice is heard. Uh, you know, uh, the, in Danish, the same word for to vote at, 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 to, you know, is the same word as voice. And I think that there might be some etymological roots for vote and voice. So, so in Danish, it's the same word, stimme. So it, it's with my voice that I vote. And I think that, that these ideas will, will grow. At least we can see that uh, we have many people taking these uh, management uh, training courses and are interested, but we are up against uh, a bureaucratic level, administrative level, and they are only focusing on money, on Excel, our, uh, yeah, Excel uh, sheets, sheets. Thank you. Um, so uh, you know, and I would never hope that narrative ideas would be mainstream because then we're lost. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think we always got to be at the margins and uh, always be radical. Radical means go to the roots. Right. That's the original etymological word of, of, of the word. Uh, Chris, I, I have this sense that if we ask people to, you know, talk to their neighbors for two minutes and then come up with questions, then we will have about a little more than, uh, what do you think about that? I think that's great, but I have one more question for you that I like yeah, to yeah. ask all my guests on my podcast, and that is, um, well, I have two questions. The first one is, are there any emerging ideas in narrative therapy that you're excited about applying to organizational context? And the second part of that question is, what books, ideas, thinkers, films, whatever, et cetera, uh, are you, what's capturing your attention these days? Uh, 
I'm actually interested in existentialist thoughts, mm. uh, in, in phenomenological and existentialist thoughts. I just read the novel by Robert Musil, an Austrian writer who, who wrote a, a very, very thick, thick novel back in, the, in, in, 80, in 1981. He called The Man Without uh, Einscaper, is that it? The man without skills or some abilities, yeah. So I'm interested in, in actually, if if narrative work has tried to to give ideas to to human beings instead of being a part of a technique, a psychoanalytic technique, a cognitive technique, and so forth, uh, then I think we should turn to see where where uh, existentialist thoughts. Uh, what they have uh, taken us, especially Merleau-Ponty and his ideas about the body uh, are, are very exciting. And I think that that uh, although uh, although Foucault, both Foucault and Chilvers were against, uh, I would say, radical existentialism and, and phenomenolo phenomenology, I think that uh, we should... Uh, we should uh, again read this kind of literature and see see its, its limits. So um, yeah, yeah. And so I, I have started to uh, we are starting to study Foucault again and and to read it uh, again and again to see uh, where how do we how we do, how do we read it today? It's we are not the same uh, today as as ten years ago. So. Uh, Perhaps I would say that we should read the, the same texts again and again because uh, we see it with the new eyes and so forth. But uh, but I, I'm interested in kind of, uh, you could say, radical existentialism because uh, the existence and how we are treating the earth, how we are treating each other uh, are, are very fundamental here. And um, so so this is uh, the kind of books that, that I'm interested in. So... Um, and, and your first question was about oh. um, uh, emerging ideas and narrative therapy that you're excited about applying to organizational contexts. I, I, I don't know if it's emerging idea, but since I met uh, uh, since I met uh, the, the, the Gilligans, uh, Carol and Jim, James Gilligan, I'm interested in in, in uh, the concept of voice, and I've been interested in the concept of shame. Uh, and the relationship between violence and shame, uh, because uh, James Gilligan he says that all violence is based on shame, and uh, all violence, is, uh, the violence from Putin, for instance, might be reduced to avoiding shame, and all violence in organizations might be reduced to avoiding shame. So uh, I think shame is a very, very interesting concept that we should should study. Uh, how is shame produced in our culture? And uh, and I, and when we speak about anxiety in our culture, I say that anxiety is the illness of shame. And I speak about that from my own experiences. I I experienced anxiety in in school because of uh, whenever there was a talk about religion, my parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. So every, I felt so much the shame because my parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, every time there was a talk about religion or Jehovah's Witnesses, <coughs> I, I covered my head, which is uh, the gesture of, of shame. And I think that uh, uh, the power of, of, of shame, of not, of not uh, being a part of the group or being uh, thrown out of the group is... Uh, it's very, very, very interesting. Also, in organizational, um, in organizational issues, because much of the violence and and the harassment that takes place has to do with shame. I, I think so. Uh, so uh, it's it's James Gilligan's idea that that all violence has to do with shame. It's kind of avoiding shame. Uh, I know that that it's this would take us perhaps a, a bit far away. But I might say to a, to a leader, what do you feel ashamed about? And they get a shock. In, 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 in all leadership courses, 
we start with the, everyone should speak about, for instance, what are your experiences with shame? And, and leaders get a shock with that question because they can't see that shame is covering up for their weaknesses or what they think they should do and so forth. So we gotta, we gotta be able to talk about also what we feel shame about. And this goes back to an, an, an original idea by Spinoza, who is in 1653 in a letter, wrote that there are basically only two basic emotions, sadness and joy. So uh, I think Carol Gilligan says that on the bottom of, of anger lies immense sadness. She writes that in, in the book called Joining the Resistance. At the bottom of, of, of uh, anger lies immense sadness. So, so these are these ideas that I try to bring into organizational work and, and to, to ask about people's experiences with that so that we get another language to speak about leadership and organizational work. And, uh, you know, the leader is a kind of butler for the community. <laughs> I like that. I like that metaphor. A butler or a gardener and uh, how can I help you? Or in Danish, uh, the, the word uh, for a leader is, is the same as, as the word searcher. So to lead is to search for what we haven't found because otherwise there would be no reason to search, to lead. And, and, and this kind of play with the words uh, uh, shows uh, that the leader does not have the uh, answers, but the questions. And at the same time has to, to, to make decisions where we're heading at. But every decision is, uh, is um, contingent. It could have been different. It could have been different. So sometimes I'm asked, why do you take the decision? And then I look at the clock. Uh, because it's an even day. <laughs> you see, it's, it's, not a, it's not a rational choice. It's, it's the best choice we can make, given what we know. But tomorrow we might decide something different. Did I cover both of your yes, last questions? Yes, thank you for that. And we have a little bit of time left. I would like to open it up to the audience to see if there are any questions. Yeah, yeah. 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 Any questions, any comments, any thoughts, or uh, please uh, help us. And uh, whoever wants to uh, say something and bring it into the open, Chris and I are, are waiting here. And uh, you can do it in Danish, you can do it in, in English, or whatever. You want to say something here, or you just had a, a, a group discussion here? We had a question that we actually like to get answered, but none of us were able to express it very fluently uh, in English. Good. So could you mind? Yeah, in Danish. Yeah, 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 yeah. The question goes like this: What are what are the elements of the exist existentialist thought that I think could be could be used in narrative work? Actually, I I don't know. Actually, I really don't know. But uh, so I I say that narrative therapy is not existentialist therapy but existential therapy because it has to do with the existence so it's not an ism but it has to do how we exist and how can we understand it how can how can we really take the idea of local knowledge into consideration and not make it into general knowledge or the general maps that that uh, that uh, Travis uh, spoke again. So I'm interested in in the the existence and not in existentialism, because they that's uh, that's the individualistic approach. But I'm interested in in the existence, uh, in 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 the cultural approach. You could say uh, to understand the uh, the power uh, power dynamics or uh, that goes on uh, everywhere because power is productive, not negative, not positive. So I'm interested in, in the existence, and that is to get away from narrative therapy as a technique, because narrative therapy is not a technique, it's a practiced, practiced, practiced ethic. technique, they practice ethic. So it's, a, it's a really that we understand or get a sense of what are, what are the effects of what we're doing on, on other people's life. So that's uh, I, I'm more interested in, in the term, the existence in than in existentialism. Am I making myself clearer about this? 
Okay, thank you, because I, I know that I came to uh, perhaps uh, talk about it a, a bit unclear, but I, I think that, that narrative therapy is really interested in <clears throat> the advantage of narrative uh, approach uh, has to do with two concepts. First of all, the concept of power, because systemic ideas, other therapies do not have um, a concept of power. They have a traditional concept of power, perhaps, but not modern power. So that any theory who's not got a concept of power is really powerful without it knowing it. So that's the, the one issue. The other issue the, is the intentionality. Because systemic therapy, other therapies, uh, other therapists, uh, phenomenological theory, theory, uh, theory, theories might have the, the concept of, of intentionality. But because it's so rooted in phenomenology, you try to say that it, the intentions were something inside, but you've got to see that every person has a kind of voice and born into relationship. These are the points from Carol Gilligan. So what are your intentions? So we want to strengthen, uh, strengthen people's uh, agency that they can do something in their work. <clears throat> so it's 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 a strengthening of the the agency aspect that the concept of of intentionality, values, principles, dedication, and so forth. Those of you who are familiar with with the <clears throat> with, with these kind of words uh, work um, scaffolding from Vygotsky is is very crucial to have so that make that people are aware of their their intentions what they really want to accomplish and that, that's that's uh, 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 apart from from phenomenology although it's not a realize that it has these roots <clears throat> yep um, come on would you say that um, maybe part of this element of the conceptual is finding the voice of each individual, and in finding their voice, then they thereby exist or acknowledges their existence. You could put it that way, but I would say that culture speaks through us. I would say that culture speaks through us, and that's what what Travis uh, emphasized. That he said, "It's not my book. It's 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 a book of a community, a book of people working together, and we are follow, we are." Uh, yeah, we're taking other voices further on. So I, I would I would I would put it that way that it's not the voice of the individual, but see how I am I connected to the rest of the world, the culture. I would say that there was a question here. Yeah. Yeah, it's just about psychological safety. Uh, I was just wondering because it's very popular, right? So popular because it it's individualizing. It's individual. It is individualizing, so we do not have to look at the culture. Oh, it's you. You got to have, and we got to create psychological safety for you, so that you feel good. Then you can take a spa and feel more safe. Oh, questions about the position, the leader as a Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes the bottle has to take decisions. <clears throat> a leader has to make decisions, and every time you make a decision, somebody get mad, gets mad at you. Uh, to to take a decision in Danish, be slutning. Now we end this. We 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 sluter. So yeah, be sluter. hysteri in all my hysterical. <laughs> In all my wisdom and all my fullness, and as I said before, yes, tomorrow I might have decided something different. So, uh, I mean, with a narrative approach or post-structuralist approach, I know that when I have slept, I, f I find another idea that I have to bring up so that, that we are always in a process. We are never uh, reaching a, a kind of goal or something, but... Um, we're always in a process. I think time is up. Thank you, uh, Chris, for participating in this and for doing this uh, broadcast, uh, whatever it is. Do you have a final remark here to us? No, I just want to thank everybody involved for making this happen. It's been a lot of fun for me, and it was nice to be in conversation with you, Alan. Thank you, Chris. Thank you a lot.
Well, that's our show. And as always, uh, you can find The Radical Therapist on all the social media. Well, first of all, let me, let me ask you if you could rate and review the show wherever you're listening from. That's how we get out in front of people. So if you're listening on iTunes or Podbean or Spotify or wherever, please uh, rate and review the show so we can get out in front of more folks. And, uh, and please come find me on the social medias. Uh, you can find the Radical Therapist at Instagram, the Radical Therapist on Facebook, and uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me at the Radical Therapist at gmail.com. Uh, and so, yeah, that's it. As always, thanks for listening. Peace.